0: so I want to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 28. If you're new to Bible study, it's an easy book to find. Matthew is the first book of the New Covenant. And if you'll turn to the 28th chapter, we're going to be in the 16th verse. And while you're turning there, I am very thankful to be here. I really thank Josh, not only for the opportunity to preach here and knowing of this great ministry all those years with Bill as your pastor and how God has used him and now using Josh, I'm thankful that Josh picked a Sunday after the dogs had a big win like that yesterday. Because I told him, I said, Josh, either that congregation is going to be deeply depressed or they're going to be rejoicing and happy to hear the words. So I'm glad it worked out that way. And you dog fans are living high now. Congratulations to you. You'll be number one once again. You know, I'm a Carolina Gamecock, and I know that you have been frustrated as dogs not measuring up to expectations a lot of years, but imagine being a Carolina Gamecock and being the essence of mediocrity for 100 years. That is, that is not an easy calling, I want you to know. So you really have it pretty good here, being dogs. And if you're a Tennessee fan, bless your heart, you're a very person to be here in worship today. Now, we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. This is called Christ's Great Commission. It shows us the most important work on the face of the earth. So if you're physically able, would you stand once again to honor God in the reading of his word, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority, to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, as we stand before you, our Creator, the sovereign God over all of the universe. We pray now that you, the Holy Spirit, will teach us your word, how to apply your word to our everyday life, that you will convict us right where we live about what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, you know right where each of us are living, those that are having a hard time, those that are under great stress, those facing depression and anxiety, those that are facing loss and suffering. But you also know those that are riding high, feeling good today. A lot of good things are happening. You know where we are. But we pray that right now, for the next few moments, that you will speak and we will hear And more than here, we will receive your word in faith. And more than receiving it in faith, we will apply your word to our everyday life. And Lord, as always, when the word is open, may Jesus Christ be glorified. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Long time to stand through the sermon. It was a privilege to be the founding pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist in North Atlanta. And when we began, we were meeting in an unleashed doctor's office. To stay there for 38 years and pastor one flock from the beginning was really a tremendous privilege. And in that, there were three key times and three key ways that God used and worked in our lives to help Johnson Ferry become a Great Commission Church. Number one was through giving. In that very first year, we set up a budget of $88,000. That included all the cost of leasing that unleased doctor's office, all the operating costs, and the pastor's salary. It wasn't a whole lot, I promise you. But in that giving and that budget, we said we want to give at least 10%, and we decided to give 11% to Global Missions. Because Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You would think he would say, where your heart is, that's where you give. That's where you spend. But he didn't say that. He says, where you spend, where you give, there your heart will be. And I think that was a significant decision in the very first year of that brand new church to put global missions As a huge priority and what happened over time is not only did that percentage increase in the budget, but we decided with every capital campaign, we were going to give the first 10% of what came in that capital campaign to global missions. And in our last two capital campaigns, we were able to give the first 20 cents of every dollar that came in to global missions. And I know what you're doing here at Prince Avenue. You're in a time of capital expansion that calls on not only God to do more. But for each person here to do more, and to do more in the area of giving, not just in your regular tithes and offerings, but to give sacrificially, knowing that as you give, there your heart will go. And God has given you a tremendous opportunity, both reaching your local mission field here in Athens, but also the global mission field that God has called us to. So I really believe giving is a key area. But secondly, it's prayer. After we've been meeting as a new church for about eight years, the International Mission Board came to us, and they said, we picked out 10 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that are very generous and given to missions, and we want to ask you to consider adopting an unreached people group. We said, well, that'd be great. We'd love to do that. What do we do? They said, well, first of all, let us tell you the people group. They're the Kyrgyz people group. We said, who's that? They said, well, they're the people of Kyrgyzstan. We said, where's that? We were just classically American, geographically challenged people. And we found out they were a central Central Asian republic of the old Soviet Union. And the International Mission Board said, look, you're not going to be able to go there because the Iron Curtain is there. You're not allowed to enter there with the gospel. Right now, you're just to pray that God will open the door for you to take the gospel in and for the gospel to be able to go to the people of Kyrgyzstan. So we began to pray. And two years later, on Christmas morning, December 25th, 1991, the hammer and sickle flag of communism fell and the Soviet Union ended. And the people at Johnson Ferry were taking the credit for that. Because after all, we've been praying for an opportunity to go in. I, I know, I'm just kidding on that. But we did feel we had a part in that. And so we began to send in some of our business people to teach free enterprise, teach how to have a business. It was a communist system. They didn't know anything about that. We began to send in some of our medical relief teams to go and meet needs there where people were hurting. But all of those teams were trained to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it came out of prayer. This is a praying church. You've been praying that God would guide you in not only fulfilling his will, but doing more of what God wants you to do and wants this church to do in reaching this community and people around the globe. Prayer is vitally important, but thirdly, is going. And after we had been meeting for about 10 years as a church, our student pastor came to me and said, Brian, rather than our students heading out to 30A or Destin or whatever is Atlanta Beach down there on the Gulf Coast, I want to challenge our high school students to give up their spring break, go through eight weeks of discipleship training, to prepare for going to minister to the poorest of the poor south of the border in Texas, to build houses for them, and to share the gospel door to door. And y'all, there were only about 30 teenagers and adults that went on that first mission trip, but it's hard to describe the impact it had on Johnson Ferry in becoming more of a Great Commission congregation because every year after that, leading up to covid more and more people were giving up a spring break or a vacation time to go to people around the world to share the gospel of Christ to where in the latter years leading up to COVID, we were averaging between 70 and 80 short-term mission trips around the globe every single year as people were going out to share the good news. And the church was sending them out to do so. Now, those were the three major ways God worked in the life of Johnson Ferry. Giving, And prayer and going just like you have a team in Nepal right now this very hour to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we look at Christ's great commission today, what I hope everybody here will grasp is that God has given each of you and this church at Prince Avenue an opportunity to be a part of the most important work on the face of the earth. Nothing comes close to the work and the mission of Christ's church. So let's see what unfolds in this passage in Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, to understand what's happening here, this is one of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. How many appearances did Christ make? Well, we don't know. But we do know that there were about 11 appearances of Christ in the 40 days after he rose from the dead and before he ascended to heaven. Do you know what those are? He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And then to the women that came with Mary Magdalene to the tomb on the day of his resurrection. And on that day, we know that he appeared to Peter. We don't know much about that visit. But we also know later that afternoon, he appeared to two men who were on the road to Emmaus that were greatly depressed because they thought Jesus was the Messiah and he had been killed and his mission was over. And he reassured them and opened the word for them. Then that night on the resurrection night, Jesus appeared to 10 of his disciples But after that, on the next Sunday night, one of those disciples who wasn't there, Judas had already committed suicide in betraying Jesus. But one of the disciples named Thomas was not there on that first resurrection night. So the next Sunday night, the 11 disciples were there, including Thomas, who had said, I will never believe unless I see the scars in his hand and his side. Wouldn't you love to have been in that meeting as Jesus suddenly appeared? He said, Thomas, baby, come over here. Would you look at my hands? Would you look at my side? And if you were in Thomas' shoes, what else could you do but what Thomas did? And he just knelt and said, my Lord and my God. But Jesus also had other appearances. He appeared to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee in a fish fry there. And if you want to read about the ultimate and original come to Jesus talk, look at that passage in the Gospel of John. He also appeared to 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to his brother James. Remember, his brothers were pretty skeptical of him. They thought he had lost his mind. But when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, appeared to James, James became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. But he also appeared to his disciples right here in a mountain around the Sea of Galilee. And then his final appearance that is recorded was on the Mount of Olives where he ascended to heaven where he is at this very moment in time. And one day he will return again according to the prophet Zechariah and touch down on the Mount of Olives when he comes again. It will be glorious. But here he had told his disciples to go to a certain mountain and he wanted to meet with them. Now why did they do that? They did it because they were glad to be with him. They were excited to be with him. And they wanted to be with him, but also they loved him because he loved them first. And the best way that we show God that we love him is through voluntary obedience. He told them to go to this mountain. They went there in anticipation of another appearance of Jesus. Now, question, question. Where did Jesus go between all these appearances? I don't know. Ask your pastor, Josh, when he comes back, and then he can give you all the insight about that. Now, let's go to verse 17. When they saw him, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Well, I guess so. The man has been crucified, dead, and buried, and he has risen from the dead. Wouldn't you worship him? You know, worship is both individual in our personal quiet times, devotional times, but it's also corporate. One of the difficulties of COVID is that COVID caused the church around the globe to have a time of separation where people could not come together and worship together. And that was painful. That was not an easy time in the life of the church. We need corporate worship. We need times like this where we come together with other believers worshiping the Lord together. So they worship corporately the risen Lord who is appearing to them once again. But then look at what it says in verse 17. But some were doubtful. Now, I've got a confession to you. In about the first 10 years of being the founding pastor there at Johnson Ferry, I really missed it on this. I used to give the disciples a fit. I mean, how sorry could they be? The man has risen from the dead. And some were doubtful, I'd give them a fit. But one day in my study, the Holy Spirit really convicted me. And especially in the context of this text in verse 18, where Jesus in verse 18 Looks at them and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now listen, are you listening? I really don't believe they were doubting Jesus. I believe they were doubting themselves. They've been with Jesus for three years. Yes, this is kind of one of those last minute pep talks before the team leaves the locker room. But they already knew what they were being called to do. He's just reiterating it. And they had never been to Bible college Some of them were illiterate. They'd never been to seminary. They didn't have cars and trains and airplanes and internet and radio and TV. They didn't have any of that. They hadn't been out of Israel. Wouldn't you have some doubts about carrying out this mission that is to go around the whole globe? You see, what Jesus was doing in the Great Commission was giving them what I call a doubt size challenge something that is so big, there's no way they can fulfill it unless God is empowering them to do so. And when he sees them with the deer in the headlights, look, and, and they're overwhelmed at this calling, he reassures them. He said, look, guys, all authority has been given to me on the, in heaven and on earth. All authority, all the power you need has been given me. You stay close to me. That's what he's telling them. He's reassuring them. So here's the question. Here's the question. What kind of doubt-sized challenge are you facing in your life that God is leading you to do where the only way you can fulfill that is by the power of God because you cannot do it on your own? It could be in what you're going to give in this capital campaign that is going to so stretch you that the only way you can do it is by the power of God working powerfully in your life. It could be a calling to go and give up your present lifestyle for another. And it's such a big calling, it's so overwhelming. The only way you can fulfill it is the power of God in your life. What is God calling you to do that gives you a doubt-sized challenge like the apostles? Prince Avenue is facing a doubt-sized challenge as your pastor Josh is challenging you to do more for the kingdom of God, both in reaching the Athens community And all around the globe. How are you responding. To that doubt sized challenge. Jesus reassures us that all of his power is available to us. And that's the only way. We're going to fulfill his will. And then in verse 19. He gives what is called the great commission or the mission of the church. Look at what he says. He says go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, it's very interesting. In this imperative, in this command where Jesus tells the disciples to go, it also means from the Greek, as you are going. So, as you are going to classes at UGA, as you are going to your work, as you're going throughout your neighborhood, as you go to the dry cleaners, the service station, as you go hunting and fishing and playing golf, whatever it may be, as you go about life, our calling is to make disciples. It is both an imperative, a command, but it's also telling us it's a lifestyle. That's what God is saying to us as you're going. And our calling is not to make converts, our calling is to make disciples. Question, question. Who is the greatest football coach of all time? Now, this is going to be a very controversial answer. You're not going to like it. But who's the greatest football coach of all time? Well, it's obvious by the record, it's Nick Saban. I know you call him Nick Satan here in Athens. But, I mean, you are saying no, Curvy's the best. Well, he may be one day. But right now, according to the record, it's Nick Saban. You really can't argue with that record. And think about what has happened with Nick Saban. Think of all the guys coaching college football today that either coached under Saban or played under Saban. It's more than you can count. What is a disciple? They learn from the master teacher about how to carry out the responsibility. And you see that with Nick Saban. I mean, think about Coach K. Do you realize there are 11 Major college, division one basketball coaches that either played with Coach K at Duke or they coached under. Now, that's that's what it means to make a disciple. What Jesus is saying, we're to make disciples, not converts, we're to make disciples. That is true, devoted followers of Jesus. People that are willing to allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to shape their life so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is, to become more and more like Jesus in spirit and in character, to make disciples. That is our calling. And at Sin Relief, we are all about serving the churches that are carrying out this great commission through ministries of compassion. Let me give you one example. There are many ministry projects that we support in Sin Relief. One, we have one of our International Mission Board missionaries in the Philippines trying to reach an unreached people group of Muslims in the Philippines in one of the villages there. It was a village that had never had clean water. This IMB missionary was a former engineer. He sent for a grant from Sin Relief, purchased materials there in the Philippines, and was able to help them build a well. I'd seen a video of this. It was so moving because... One of the men through the translator was saying, is that first time ever in this village of having clean water, he says, I think I'm dreaming awake. He was so thankful that that was occurring. And since that time, over 40 of those Muslims have come to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior because meeting a need in their life opened the door for the gospel to be shared. And there are hundreds of those ministry projects that are taking place around the globe Right now, that is a way of making disciples. Now, obviously, nobody becomes a disciple unless they have heard the gospel. What is the gospel? Your pastor Josh, your former pastor Bill, they have talked to you, preached to you, shared the gospel time and again. But if somebody here in Athens asks you, What is the gospel? what do you say? Well, the gospel is Christ died for our sins. And Christ rose from the dead. That is the gospel. Now, obviously, it takes your pastor, and Bible teaches here, to clarify what that means. If Christ died for your sins, well, who's Jesus? Who's Christ? He is the Son of God that has left his throne in heaven. And he came not only to show us God and show us how God wants us to live, but he came most of all to give his life for us on the cross, to shed his blood on for us on the cross as a perfect sacrifice in atonement for our sins. In other words, we deserve death and judgment of God because of our sins. That's what we deserve, all of us. But in the incredible love of God, Christ came to give his life and to pay the penalty we should pay for our sins when he shed his blood for us on the cross that's that's incredible love and when we come to acknowledge what he has done believing who he is confessing our sin to God willing to repent and follow him then we are cleansed of our sin we're forgiven of our sin and we are made right with God not by anything we've done but by what Jesus has done but folks the news gets even better Christ did not end on the cross Christ conquered sin and death through his resurrection. And I know how it is in Atlanta, and I don't think it's any different here in Athens. We are eat up with bad news, whether it is on television, whether it's the radio, whether it's that ancient form of communication. Ask your grandparents about newspapers, or whether it's social media or in the internet, whatever it may be. We are overwhelmed with bad news. What could be better news than to realize all of us as sinners can be forgiven and cleansed of sin? And in the process, not only have that and be made right with God, but to have victory over death. Folks, what could be better news than this? That is the message of the church that must be shared if a person is going to make a decision in faith of deciding to become a follower or disciple of Jesus, Have you made that decision? I can't make it for, it, for you. I, I, your, your pastor can't make it for you. Your parents certainly can't make it for you. Have you made that decision? Well, have you? Look at what Jesus says. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, here is part of the genius of Jesus in this great commission. The word for nations is the Greek word ethnos. We get our English words ethnic or ethnicity from this Greek word. And the genius of Jesus is this. When he gave this great commission, if you were to look at a world map in the first century, you wouldn't recognize the names of most of the nations. You wouldn't recognize the geographical boundaries of most of the nations. If you were to see a map or a globe of the world in the year 1900, you wouldn't recognize a lot of the nations. You wouldn't recognize a lot of the geographical boundaries. Jesus knew all that would change. But using the word ethnos is where we get our words people groups. You see, people groups have a common language and a common culture. A people group may be a tribe of several hundred, or it might be a mega millions people group. But missiologists tell us there are about 11,700 people groups on the face of the earth. And of those, about 7,000 of those people groups are considered unreached. How do missiologists define that? That is a people group where less than 2% of the population are Christian. So in other words, even a people group like the Japanese is considered an unreached people group because less than 2% of the population is Christian, even though they've had ministries and missionaries for hundreds of years. But of those 7,000 unreached people groups, about 3,100 have no known Christian or church or Christ-centered ministry of any kind. They're not only unreached, they're totally unengaged with the gospel. But listen, are you listening? Just 11 years ago, in 2011, there were about 3,800 unreached and unengaged people groups on the face of the earth. 700 more than today. Folks, this is the fastest drop in the history of the church. And what it tells us is that God is up to something powerful in our world. And when the gospel is taken to remote parts of the world, like the Nava people group, that your team from Prince Avenue Baptist is is ministering to and reaching out to with the gospel to make disciples into Paul. When a people group like that that hasn't known anything about Jesus and people come to Christ, the next step is planning a church among those people groups. And talking to Sky Pratt yesterday about what's happening in Nepal, he was saying that they are about to begin a house church there in Nepal from the few people who have come to Christ. Folks, that's exciting because you as a church have a part in taking the gospel to the remotest part of the earth to have another people group so that 3,100, there's one less today because of ministries like yours that you're engaged in. That's exciting. That's what we're called to do. So, What's going to be your role through giving, through prayer, through going in the days to come in making disciples here in Athens and all around the globe? Now, how do we know a person has been reached for Christ? Well, What Jesus says and what Jesus commands a new follower of Christ is to be baptized. What does the Greek word baptism mean? It means immersion. And what is the symbol in baptism? There's the symbol of the gospel. As a person enters that water... And they go under the water. It's a symbol of the burial of an old life without Christ, rising up out of the water, the symbol of the cleansing that comes about through what Christ has done for you on the cross, but a symbol of walking a new life and following Jesus. The symbol of the gospel, the symbol of transformation is there. But understand this: a person is not saved in the baptism. I don't think Prince Avenue is much different from Johnson Ferry and that through the years, we had a lot of folks enter the baptismal waters lost and come up out of those waters wet and lost. Doesn't save anybody being baptized. It is simply a symbol of a decision that you have made that Christ has chosen to publicly identify yourself as a follower of Christ. And your parents don't have that. They don't have that power to make that decision. It's not something that it can occur in infancy. It's something that occurs after you trust Christ. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. In pastoring one church for 38 years, as you can imagine, I had hundreds of weddings. Now, this may shock you, but not once in all of those weddings did I have a person fall in love in their wedding ceremony. Not one time. Because you see, they came to that wedding ceremony because they already had made a commitment to one another. And then they were going before God in the body of Christ to share that commitment publicly. That's what baptism is. And that is the outward sign of the fact that we have decided to follow Jesus. It is also the very first thing a new believer is commanded to do as a testimony of their faith. That's part of fulfilling the Great Commission. But look at the second part of the Great Commission. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, Jesus is saying that we're to teach the commands, the commands of God, to every new disciple of Jesus, and we're to continue to do so. What are the commands of God? That is the scripture, that is the Bible. The best way that we can understand how to follow Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus is through the word of God and the Holy Spirit convicting us and teaching us and guiding us on how to apply the word of God to our everyday life. That's how we understand what it means to be a follower. And here is the tendency in church after church. Every church, Prince Avenue, Johnson Fury, every church on the face of the earth is going to tend to get lopsided. A church will be so strong on evangelism, they're about a mile wide and an inch deep theologically and doctrinally in commitment. On the other hand, some churches so pride themselves on the deeper spiritual life that they after a while begin to form what I call a holy huddle. They're deeply spiritual people in their discipleship. Now you watch the pro games today, watch pro football today. When the team gets in a huddle and you're outside that huddle, it's not a real attractive sight. All you see is a bunch of rear ends. It's not really inviting with a holy huddle. And that's how holy huddle churches tend to be to those that are outside the church. So Jesus is telling us, look, don't be lopsided. We're to be both. We're to be reaching people for Christ, making disciples, but we're also to be teaching them the commands of God, how to apply their faith and their walk with Christ to everyday life. The balance there. That's the great commission. Now, thinking about this, as we think about what Jesus is saying and teaching them how to obey the commands, how to observe them, here's the question. Are you one of those folks that is very dedicated and active in Bible study, but you really never get around to applying why we study the Bible, and that is to make disciples? Everybody don't miss this. Disciples, true disciples, make disciples. True disciples don't come to weekly Bible study 40 and 50 and 60 years and never make disciples. That's not a true disciple. The Bible study that is so important to our development and growth in Christ is how God trains us to make disciples. Think about it this way. Can you imagine if you played on this incredible football team here at Georgia? You're one of the dogs on the team. And all you do every season is go to practice day after day. And come Saturday in Sanford Stadium, you're sitting in the stands with all the fans just looking at an empty field. Thinking about how great it would be to play football on on that field. I mean, that's absurd. And you wouldn't have 90,000 fans show up for that, I promise you. And yet, that's the picture of what the majority well-meaning Christians do and carry out in their own life by going to Bible study after Bible study and never getting around to making disciples. That's what we're called to do. Can't make disciples unless you have the Bible study and the Bible teaching, but we don't stop there. We're about reaching people and then teaching them how to obey the word is that happening in your life if you claim to be a follower of Jesus well is it Jesus not only reassures the disciples in verse 18 because he sees they're overwhelmed with this doubt sized challenge he's given them but he reassures them in the end he says lo I am with you always even to the end of the age now this is not the only time Jesus uses that phrase the end of the age In Matthew 24, when he's talking about his second coming, Matthew 24 and 25, you want to find out about Jesus' second coming, read those two chapters. And in Matthew 24, 14, he's very clear that the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached to the whole world, to every people group on the face of the earth, and then the end will come. Jesus gives us this great commission, which is the most important work on the face of the earth, And he says, look, once this mission of the church is fulfilled, then the end will come. Now, that's what Jesus says. I know some of you feel like you're prophecy experts and you've got it all figured out in the timing and the events of the prophecy. But I'm going to believe Jesus. I think he knows the most about this. And he's very clear that he's not coming Until the gospel is taken to every people group on the face of the earth. Because, folks, in Revelation 7, 9, in the picture you have of heaven one day, around the throne of Jesus in heaven, worshiping the Lord Jesus, will be a representative of every tongue, tribe, and people group. That's what it says in the word of God. So that tells us of how important this mission is that God has given his church. So, what will be your role in carrying out the most important work on the face of the earth? What will be your role in giving? In giving of the financial resources God has entrusted you, what will be your role? Secondly, secondly, What will be your role in praying for the body of Christ to fulfill Christ's mission here on earth? And third, what will be your role in going and sending? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you today about the possibility of going on a short-term trip or even long-term calling in missions and ministry, are you willing to respond in faith to fulfill what God has chosen for you to do so that your role in carrying out the most important work on the face of the earth can be fulfilled. And is Prince Avenue willing to be ascending church as you already are, but in an even greater way in the months and years ahead to where as you see more and more people called to go, you're providing the support, the resources, the prayer to see that those folks carry out what God has called them to do. Are you willing to be not only a church where people go, but a church where people are sent? Folks, the most important work on the face of the earth is the work of Christ church. And when Christ calls you, he not only calls you to give, sal- to give you salvation, he not only calls you to give you eternal life, but he calls you and chooses you to be a part of the most important work on the face of the earth. What an opportunity. What a special calling. You know, one of the events that happened through one of our sin relief projects happened right In the early days of COVID in South Asia. And one of our International Mission Board missionaries sent for a grant, send relief, for a feeding project to a village where there were about 8,000 adults, no known Christians, people of another religion. And so they worked with the national Christians that they had been discipling and that they had led to Christ to go and deliver food bags to families that could have enough food for two weeks to a month, depending on a family of four, how they would ration out that food. Now, folks in different parts of the world, it wasn't like the United States where we have safety nets in times like this. A lot of people in the world, they were afraid they were gonna starve to death in the early days of COVID. But in providing that food for that particular village of people of another faith, there were 8,000 or so adults in that village Over 2,000 of those adults trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, there's an old saying, a hungry man has no ears. And when a person's about to starve to death or fears they're going to starve to death, they can't hear whatever we want to say about life. They're just desperate to have that basic need of food met in their life. It's interesting to hear those stats, but let me just tell you about one family. One of the families that they visited when they were distributing that food was a husband and wife that had decided to have a last supper with all their children, and they were going to poison their children and poison themselves because they didn't want their children to go through the agonizing weeks and months of slowly starving to death. And when those Christians showed up with that food bag, when they had planned on that very afternoon to have that final meal with their family, They were so overwhelmed that that husband and wife trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Think about what this means. It not only saved that whole family from physical death, but now that husband and wife had been saved from a spiritual death in hell, permanently separated from God because of the love of Christ that was shown as these people who cared for them in feeding shared the good news of Christ with them. I don't know about you, but that excites me to think of the impact we can have on the whole world as we carry out Christ, Christ's great commission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will be your role? How is God leading you today? Students, adults, in the role you already have with your family, with your vocation, what is God leading you to do in the days ahead that is far more than you've ever dreamed, that is perhaps a doubt-sized challenge and that is so overwhelming that the only way you can fulfill that calling through giving and prayer and going It's by the power of God, the power of Jesus Christ, giving you all you need to fulfill His calling for each of you. May each of us be willing to serve and go as God leads. Let's pray.